I will now turn things over uh, to Christopher and Christopher has studied um, in many different traditions um, and in a couple of weeks he will be engaging in an intense study within the um, Burmese tradition um, and the meditation he is, he'll be going to, to Burma for perhaps a very long time um, perhaps years um, and we're studying in a monastery there so that what he's going to be teaching us uh, today is a particular um, mindfulness uh, technique and um, I will simply turn things over to him and First of all, thank you. Secondly, I'm not a meditation master. <laughs> um, thirdly, I want to share practical advice. Um, so hopefully, when we leave, you'll have a few nuggets that you can take with you. Um, based on primarily <laughs> my own experience, which has encountered many troubles in meditation for starting, for starting, and then, you know, really engaging in a lot of reading and trying a lot of things, probably like many of you, just searching, 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 and then you kind of end up keeping what works for you, and if you don't have a teacher, you're grasping at a lot. It's kind of a scattershot approach. But then you're hopefully able to find a teacher who can give you some specific uh, tools and tasks um, that'll point you in, a, in one direction. If I don't know from personal experience what I'm about to share with you, I will tell you who I heard it from, who I read it from. Um, Paul Oksaida is someone that my wife and I are going to study with in, in Myanmar, and um, I have a lot of respect for this person, so I will quote him. Um, uh, Venerable Upandita from the Mahasi Saida tradition, I will quote him also. Um, and there are others who I'll quote. The Buddha, for instance. And in dealing with mindfulness, um, let me just start with, with that. In the um, Mahasamapada Sutta, Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha stressed to know constantly, constant knowing, moment to moment. Specifically, if we're talking about the breath, he not only talked about knowing the breath, where it touches, either at the nose, in the nose area, feeling it there. Some teachers talk about the belly, such as Mahasi Saidaw. Some teachers point to the heart. And other teachers beyond that uh, imagine the whole breath body, which the Buddha talks about, as something that you feel in your entire body and even around your body. So it depends on who you follow. The person that we're going to study with very soon talks about knowing the breath right here. Not only that, the quotation of the Buddha is to not just know the breath there, which means feeling the breath and later actually seeing the breath. By feeling the breath constantly, 
eventually an amita, it's called an amita, a sign of concentration appears. To some meditators, it's just a very strong, crisp feeling. It can be very tight or it can feel like your head's turning into a balloon. And for others, it manifests as a kind of a wispy smoke. And Visuddhimagga talks about that. A string, a string of pearls, um, uh, mist, um, or a star-like white light. And then later on, something transparent that resembles an orb. And it sticks to your face. So we'll talk about that. Um, but I also wanted to provide something that um, would help. Uh, it's, it's, it's a traditional way of talking about meditation and what you're supposed to be paying attention to. And that's by use of simile. So <laughs> uh, when Venerable Poonsok surprised me <laughs> last week and wanted me to talk, I said, okay, what would be a useful simile or metaphor to talk about this? Because the Dhamma is, is rather large and complex. And I was reading about the chariot simile. So, okay, well, we don't ride chariots anymore, right? But how many people know how to ride a bicycle? Just raise your hand. Does everyone know how to ride a bicycle? Everyone remembers when they were kids, right? The struggle of dealing with this object, this bicycle, learning how to ride it. And I thought, this might be good. Why? Well, the bicycle has many parts. And if you look at the meditation instruction, you can see that the enlightenment factors, even uh, the jhana factors, um, uh, suffering, concentration, effort, uh, mindfulness, direction, aim, energy, pity or rapture, pretty much I figured could all fit within this simile of the bicycle. So if you imagine a bicycle, you can close your eyes or open your eyes, it doesn't matter. If you imagine a bicycle is in front of you, the first thing you do is you approach it, right? And if you've never ridden it before, it can be a little scary, a little intimidating, right? And you, perhaps you have training wheels. The training wheels maybe are your teacher. If you approach this bicycle roughly, say without morality, which means respect, right? Without humility. And you get on it too fast without mindfulness, you know where you're going to end up. You're gonna end up on your face in the ditch. And we've all done that, we all had to fall. So what are the things that we have to balance to achieve the, say, 16 Vipassana knowledges that are in the Theravada, or any kind of meditative attainment? Bliss, joy, rapture, absorption, one-pointedness, and so on. All of these very positive mental states, mental purification, and so on. What the Buddha talked about and said that we could achieve if we practice. When you get on the bike with mindfulness of morality, which is provisional morality, because the real morality you experience is actually when you achieve great, pure, abiding, wholesome, relinquishing meditation. You know the difference. Right now we're, we're acting moral, which means we have to remind ourselves to be good people. But when you actually let go in mindfulness and concentration with just the right amount of effort and balance, you become a pure being.
for that moment. Even if it's just for those 15 minutes or that hour or those two hours on the pillow. And then later on, because the Buddha said that we're to keep this momentary ongoing knowing throughout the day, that's the real challenge. We're actually supposed to, he actually said that we're supposed to take it off of the pillow and into our daily lives. This is something I definitely need to work on. Right? So, even after we achieve mastery of the cushion, we're supposed to take that mastery out with us. And there are five masteries. Let's go back to the bike. We get on the bike, and what is the first thing that we have to do? Well, if we don't put our hands on the handlebars, we're not going to have much control. So I'd like you to consider, just like when you get on a bicycle and you put your hands on the handlebars, and you turn left and you turn right. Not too fast, not too slow. And you aim it in the right direction, this is akin to mindfulness. Why? Because there is contact with the Dhamma. There is contact with reality. Upandita talks about rubbing your mind against your meditation object. It may be the breath. In other traditions, it may be sound. It may be an image. Whatever your teacher is telling you to concentrate on, you absolutely have to have mindfulness or you're going to end up wildly out of control and you're going to bounce out somewhere that you didn't want to be. So with respect, you're on the bike, right? You put your hands on the handlebars of mindfulness and you put your feet on the pedals. The pedals are akin to effort. Initially, we need a lot of effort, right? And when we're very enthusiastic, some of us are too enthusiastic and some of us are victims of sloth and torpor, victims of laziness. It depends on your personality type. It depends on how much stress you've been dealing with the day, through the day, how much tiredness you have. You know at the time whether or not you have or are a victim of uh, the hindrance of sloth and torpor or the, uh, if you're a victim to the hindrance of anxiety and excitedness. If you have sloth and torpor, you start to nod. We've all experienced that. In my experience, in the evening is more challenging. Especially if you're after watching television or dealing with a lot of people, a lot of sensory impact at work. Why is this? Back to the bike. You're, you have your hands on mindfulness and you're looking forward, right? But whatever you shine the light of concentration on, let's assume this bike has a light. Right? and it's shining forward. Whatever you make your ears aware of, whatever you're obsessed by through the day, you bring with you to the bike. You cannot maintain good control if you're laddled down with a bag on the left side filled with the past and a bag on the right filled with the future. What does that mean? It means the past means, oh, that horrible thing that happened to me in the past or that horrible person that did this to me in the past, right? Or even that Dhamma I read about <laughs> in the past, right? This shows up as conversation and talk. At the end of the day, you even, this is very difficult, and I was victim to this over the past couple of days because I was uh, <laughs> really wondering about how I would be able to share this with you. Talk, nonstop talk in your ear from your boss, the Dhamma, things that you've read, things on television, news, 
talking in your ear. Let's say this is the past, right? And on the right is worry about the future. Oh, where am I going to be? How am I going to be? Will I be successful? What's going to happen? I have to pay the rent and so on. We all know this. This is real. And it shows up as either images, right? Or it shows up as sounds. It can also show up as feelings. But for the most part, you've got to deal with sounds and images, conversations, no, internal noise. I'm not talking about external things that are happening in the present. We're talking about the sankharas, actually called defilements. Why are they called defilements? Because they defile the pure mind that knows. If you're riding your bike, your dhamma bike, we're pedaling along, right? We're on our cushion, our seat. Our seat is balance. If you move a little bit to the left, you fall off balance. If you're a little bit over to the right, you fall off balance, just like in real life if you're just sitting on a cushion. But actually, your mind has to be balanced as well. Equanimity, balance, mindfulness. The light is concentration. It means the ability to focus and see your object clearly, moment to moment. If you take your eye off the road, right, you can hit something, you fall over. So we're directing, right? We're pedaling, we're, moved, we're, we're, we're creating effort, we're using our own effort to create the momentum of energy. This energy is transferred to the wheels, right? When you're riding a bike, right? This is very important because at the beginning of your meditation, especially when you're just starting out, you have to use a lot of effort. If you don't have enough effort, if you don't have enough conviction, enough intention, Buddha talks a lot about intention. Intention is akin to karma. It's your will, your intent to do. If you don't have strong intention to achieve a goal, say, I'm going to meditate for 15 minutes, which was longer than I meditated last week, or an hour, right? Or I'm going to achieve more concentration this time, or more mindfulness this time. If you don't do that, you're not, you're, subconsciously your mind doesn't quite know what to focus on doesn't quite know. So clear that up at the beginning. So we're moving forward on the path of purification, right? And what do we see? We see things pop up on the road. If you close your eyes even right now, you're going to hear my voice internally, but you're also obviously probably mixing it, unless you're already in absorption, you're probably mixing it with background chatter having to do with your life and images coming up in your mind. These are things that happen in front. Now when you start to see them clearly and you get tired of it, this is called what the Buddha called suffering. People tend to make a big deal out of this, the, the, the noble truths. Suffering is right there. <laughs> suffering is there when you get annoyed, right? with the sensations of sound, the ruminations going on in your mind, the distractions, when you actually start to see pain as pain, when you actually start to see the suffering of the mind as it really is and you get annoyed, when you're dealing with sloth and torpor, oh, that's suffering right there. So there's mental suffering, there's emotional suffering, and there's physical suffering. These things pop up. What are you going to do? There are two things you can do. The first thing you can do, and I'll ask you to do it right now at the beginning, <clears throat> is to become extremely aware of everything you see, everything you're thinking, everything you're hearing, everything you're feeling, all of the emotions, all of it. Just 
acknowledge that it's there and really look at it. Look, 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 look. Listen, 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 listen. Feel, 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 feel. Do this with very strong conviction. This is awareness. This is knowing the overall. If you do that, if you pump that, right, what you're doing is you're waking up awareness. You're just waking up knowing in general. Sometimes it helps to do that at the very beginning before concentrating on your meditation subject. So your mind becomes filled with knowingness. It's not a very mystical thing. It's just your mind either is in a knowing state or it's in an in-between knowing and sleepy state, right? So you need energy. When you're pedaling really hard, just like a biker is pedaling really hard on the pedals, you're creating, he's, he or she is creating energy to move up the hill. And you are, you are definitely moving against the wind. You're moving against the wind when you're making yourself extremely aware. Most of the time, we're not really aware. Not in the way the Buddha talked about. We're not really aware. We may be very smart. We may be going through our list of things, our to-do lists and so on, looking at our calendar and so on, and figuring out what train to catch. This is not the same mindfulness that the Buddha is talking about. It's mindfulness of the present and the present moment. But that moment happens again and 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 again. If you make yourself very aware, it means you're arousing energy in the mind to actually see and notice continually. All of these terms like knowing and mindfulness, they're all translations of um, Pali or Sanskrit words. They're not exact. Another way to look at it is like this. Mindfulness is constantly noticing. Constantly. I don't mean as one noticing. I mean second by second. Notice, 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 notice. So if you're hearing my voice and it's saying notice, just notice every single sound that I'm making. The Buddha talked about actually knowing everything one at a time. In Vipassana, they call it insight meditation. You notice the intention to raise your hand. And then you notice the hand raising. And then you notice the next intention. Oh, I'm talking. The lips are moving. I'm hearing. I'm seeing all of you. My feeling I feel blissful, or I feel concentrated. I'm feeling mindful. I'm feeling calm. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling tense. I'm feeling relaxed. This is extremely important because when you're entering into either the vipassana uh, jhanas, sometimes they're called, or just single-pointed jhana, single-pointed mindfulness, you have to remind yourself how to fix what's not quite right. Early on, just take the breath. The Buddha is instructing you to notice the overall breath, whether it's long or short. If you take a deep breath, this is a long breath. Now you may need to do that several times so you can get to the point where you're actually just calming down and relaxing. Your body's very much like an animal. It doesn't want to calm down. It really doesn't a lot of the time. 
If you want to do yoga beforehand, if you want to do some push-ups or run around or take a walk, whatever you can do, stretching to get your body to behave and kind of let go, this is a very good thing. So you can relax. If you're noticing the breath, you're noticing whether it's long or short. First, that's the first assignment. Notice whether it's long or short. How do you know that? You're noticing where it's, you feel where it's hitting your face. Depending on the shape of your nose, you might feel the breath just underneath the point of your nose. Or you might feel it brushing up against your lip. If you can't feel it yet, it's because there isn't enough mindfulness yet. It may take days, weeks, even years to get the sensitivity of feeling the breath. One really easy way to do it is just <laughs> breathe so you can just understand, oh, there's breath there. We all know there's breath there, but we take, it for, we take it for granted. So just understand that there's going to be a sensation there. The second assignment is to notice whether it's an in-breath or an out-breath. This is easy. I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out. But most of the time we take it for granted. Most of the time the limbic system is just taking care of business. We're not really paying attention to it. Right? It just happens. We take it for granted. So knowing it, noticing it, is a conscious act. Knowing whether it's long or short. When you do this, and you do this by balancing your mindfulness, keep steering your mind back to it. Something else pops up in the middle of the road. No, 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 no. I'm coming back to my meditation object. I'm coming back to my breath. Right? That's directing. That's mindfulness. It's called, they call it um, averting consciousness. It's the consciousness that kind of slaps your mind back into place. You got distracted for a minute and you slap yourself back. Another way to beat this, if you're having problems with sticking to the breath or any meditation object, is to break your meditation into pieces. So instead of saying, I'm now sitting on my pillow or on my my bike, and I'm meditating for an hour or a half an hour. No, I'm meditating only on the out-breath. I will now meditate on the out-breath only, each time. I'm not concerned with the future or the past, just the very next breath. So the breath represents that moment. So if you breathe out, I'm noticing with really strong intention the out-breath, right? And then I relax and breathe in. And then I notice the out-breath again. I apply a lot of effort at first. To get deeper, you will have to relax even more. Just like when you're on your bike and you're pedaling uphill, then you reach a place where the momentum gets to be secure enough where you stop pedaling so hard. <laughs> where you can relax. No one's getting into heaven with a stick up their butt. No one's getting into heaven. No one's getting into jhana, right? Stiff. It's not going to happen. The stiffness is related to anger, trauma, emotional problems, fear, tightness. You have to let go. But at first, you have to have strong effort, right? So we're pedaling with really strong intention at our meditation object. Let's say it's right here. We're noticing the out-breath. If you, need, if you notice that your mind is slipping, and it actually feels like this. So what is lack of mindfulness? No text. Seriously, lack of mindfulness is a slipping of consciousness. That is, when you get to the point where you can actually see consciousness, 
when you can actually see the thought, you might not have knowledge of arising and passing away yet, but just knowledge of the end of the formation of a thought, of a feeling, of a sound, of an image in your mind, or of the breath. When you don't notice the beginning of the outbreath and just notice the end of the outbreath, this is just knowledge of the passing away. But when you get to the point where your mind is sharp enough to notice just before the outbreath, then you notice the breath itself, and then you notice it passing away. This is knowledge of arising and passing away. It means that your mind has achieved enough concentration and mindfulness to notice the beginning, the middle, and the end. This is related to the noble truths of impermanence. And this applies to everything. Everything's going to arise and pass away. We just don't necessarily see it all yet. Mostly we just see, oh, it's there. And then later we see, oh, it's there and it's passing away. But if you do this properly, you'll notice every single formation, whether it's a feeling, a thought, a mind, a quality of mind, a sound, either internally or externally, you'll notice the beginning before it even happens. Right there, you'll notice it. And you'll notice it standing, and you'll notice it passing. Another tip. If you're still not getting great mindfulness, right, and you've even relaxed and you're balanced and your effort is just right, remember the previous second of breath. What does this mean? It means, okay, I was bre- I'm breathing. Now I will remember my previous breath. If you try this, see if it helps your concentration, if it helps your mind stick to the breath even more. You just, so I'm breathing. I remember the previous breath. And I do this concurrently. Remembering, remembering, remembering. Again, these are translations, so mindfulness also translates as remembering. You'll see this. You can Google it yourself. It's also translated as, the Pali word is translated as remembering. But it's not like remembering all into the distant past. It just means remembering the present moment. But the present moment is broken up into like microseconds of just the end of the past and just the beginning of the future. So if you just go on remembering the previous breath, the previous breath, the previous breath, it'll mix This consciousness, this awareness will mix with the breath that's actually happening, and your mind will stick. Again, as Upandita says, you're rubbing, you'll get to the point where you feel your mind rubbing against the object. It's rubbing against the feeling of breath, and it becomes very exaggerated. It's no longer like the normal breath. They call it the rough breath. The rough breath is just just air, right? Later on, it feels intense and not exactly like a breath. It feels concentrated. What happens after that? If you relax even more, and you're balancing your your just the right amount of energy, not too much, because if too much, your body starts jerking. You start getting you know too excited, right? This is not balanced. Or if you get too relaxed or too tranquil, right, without having enough energy, you start to fall asleep. So we're right there in the middle, balanced perfectly. Our hands are on the bar and we're just coasting, and the road is clear. There are less objects popping up now. There are less objects of the past, and less objects of the future popping up, and we're just moving along. Everything is kind of just happening just right. You know this feeling when you're on your bike, and everything is just kind of effortless, you know? 
you don't even know how you're doing it exactly. You know, you're not even intentionally steering. It's just your mind is at one with the bike, and you're just moving along. You're just moving along, but you're noticing everything. But you're not attached to what's happening over here. You're not attached to what's happening over the things are just passing you by. They're passing you by, and you notice them. You go, oh, oh, oh. But you're focused, moving forward. Now, there's two kinds of mindfulness. The first kind of mindfulness, we'll say, is uh, samatana mindfulness or one-pointed meditation. This means that you are only concentrating on this breath. Now, there's another kind of meditation which is called insight meditation. The Buddha talked about insight meditation all the time, but they had to give it a name called vipassana meditation. But really what he's just saying is the constant noticing of whatever arises and falls away. Whatever happens, you notice it without clinging, without attachment without grasping onto it. If you're the kind of person, like my mother is when I was a kid, and we'd be in the car, she'd see a beautiful bird and go, oh, look at that, it's amazing, did you see that? That's not what we're supposed to do. God bless my mom, right? But that's not, that is the mind, even though we're not conscious of it, slipping away. It's slipping away from its primary object. So if we're doing Samatha practice, or say concentration practice, where we're concentrating wholeheartedly with our entire mind, our entire being on one object, irrespective of all the others, we're using this as a tool to focus ourselves and achieve one-pointedness. Here's what happens in the jhana uh, attainments. First, there's effort. Effort is the first factor of jhana, which is called absorption, meditative absorption. All right. The second one is constant thought or it's it's like a thought that's not that doesn't require effort it's just there just like I'm talking right now and it's kind of effortless I don't have to work too hard to talk before I had to think about what I was going to say and so it required effort if you're on a bike you're really pedaling hard to get the momentum going but then you start to coast that's what the second factor of jhana is like the mindfulness is more subtle and it has its own momentum it doesn't require like a huge turn or a huge push. It's just a little tap and you're staying right on the road. Just a little. So, okay, I'm still there, right? That's technically called the second jhana, when you can achieve that. You're just coasting along. Your unity of mind is gathering. You don't have to apply much effort. You're not straining yourself with great intention. You're just staying right there. Now, if you can do that, at this point, you have to relax even more. But you have to do so still with your hands on the bar of mindfulness. You still have to be aware of keeping yourself concentrated on the object. Now, the nature of that object will change. It becomes, it's called the subtle breath. It's no longer the ordinary breath that we feel. It's a pervasive energy. It's associated with, the, they call it pity bodily bliss, sukha, rapture. You actually feel your body vibrate or you feel your body like a cool, it becomes cool. It might be like a fine mist you kind of feel. Or it can be very, there are different kinds of pity. It can actually be kind of, not violent, but strong, like a mini earthquake. You might start to hear your heartbeat. You might start to notice every feeling in your body, but it feels very pleasant. It's called rapture. It's rapture born of seclusion. Seclusion from what? Seclusion from 
negative mind states. Seclusion from anger, seclusion uh, from delusion, seclusion from greed. You cannot bring greed with you on the bike. You can't bring anger with you. You can't bring mental irritation. You can't bring concern about the past or the future. You have to not be concerned. You have to be detached in a wholesome way. It's a feeling of balance. And when you just remind yourself, maybe to just let your shoulders go just a little bit more, right? Or let go a little bit more. <laughs> just let go a little bit more. You'll notice a pleasant feeling in your body. Okay? It's directly attributed to how much you can let go. This is kind of a secret. All of the Buddha's teachings actually relate to this letting go. Abandoning. This constant mention of abandoning. Right? Of noticing impermanence. How can you be attached to something or grasp onto something that's not there? Emptiness. All of these are teachings about letting go. Letting go of the past, letting go of the future, letting go of all your negativities, all your emotional traumas, letting go, and just staying mindful in the present. All the Dhammas point to that. Right? If you can do that, there will be an even finer aspect of jhana. They call it the third jhana. It's called bliss. Okay? This bliss isn't... Uh, it doesn't, it's not attributed to your physical, you don't feel it in your body. The mind just becomes very, very calm, very clean, very peaceful. It's really associated with a kind of a peace. It's like, man, my mind is so peaceful right now. Why can't I just have this ad be this way all the time? But you know why, you notice why, because of all the things we talked about, all the hindrances, all the problems that you have to let go of and purify. It takes a while. Your mind is like a sponge. Whatever's, you know, you got your light on the front of your bike and it's shining on the road and it sees all kinds of things, rocks, trees, people, beings. None of them are really real. We're not talking about external objects. We're talking about the objects that appear when your eyes are closed in meditation. They all have to kind of give you room. But to give them room, for them to give you room, you have to not ignore them. You just have to go, oh. Oh. I'm either staying with my meditation object, or I'm realizing the beginning, middle, and end of that. Oh. It's not really a big deal. Oh. I can't chew it. These sounds and these images, I can't touch. I can't chew. They have no concreteness. They're transparent, and they don't last. They're fading away. They're constantly fading away. When you go back to your cushion again, you kind of have to start over, because <clears throat> if you're like me, our whole lives we've been clinging. Our whole lives we've been wanting this and having ambition for that and so on. But when you get to the point where you can get enough mindfulness, concentration on your object, and understanding, knowing, mindfully, noting, I'll come back to noting in a second, you'll see that they all do this. None of them are real. They, they, have, they have no substance. They just come and go. They represent our beliefs, the things that, we're, that we believe in, things we're attached to. They're ideas. The ideas show up as images, and they show up as sounds and conversations. And normally, through the day, if you're going to work or just being with your friends, we're very attached to these conversations that we don't really notice are happening. 
we actually think they're us. When you get to this point, we're able to actually see it arise or at least stand and pass away. They kind of sneak up on you at first. You just see them passing away, like I said. When you really start to see their nature, you say, oh my goodness. Those things that I'm seeing, that I'm hearing, they're not me at all. There's actually a mind, what I perceive to be a mind, seeing that, right? Irrespective of whether they arise and perish or not. They're not me. They're not me. At this point, you're believing that your mind is you. That the observer, this observer, is you. Right. If you let go a little more and stay with this mindfulness, it could take hours. It could take days of no talking, days of no intentional seeing, days of no entertainment, days of really moderating your food, no hunger. You can't bring food with you. You can't bring the hunger with you on this bike. You can't bring any of that stuff that we normally like, the sensual fear. You can't do that. <clears throat> You have to kind of starve your mind of all these things so it can calm down, right? Once it calms down, you can go beyond bliss and you, there's a kind of equanimity and you actually might get to the point where your body takes on actually another <clears throat> level of feeling. <clears throat> it can even disappear at this stage. At first you might just see it wave a little bit. You go, my kids, what happened to my body? And then it comes back. It's just because your mind is so absorbed in this purity that all the sensual objects, they drop away. By this time, you're not really seeing anything anymore. And if you stay with your meditation object long enough, there's a purity of mind that arises. It's kind of like, uh, they talk about illumination, we talk about enlightenment. This isn't, this isn't the enlightenment, believe it or not. <clears throat> but when, you, when it happens, you'll be like, oh my goodness. Your mind becomes so pure and so clean and so wholesome, it actually seems to shine. Now, it can happen all at once, or it can happen like someone's gradually turning the lamp up. Just before this, though, you may be challenged. Your mind may throw up one last fight. So just when you thought things were calming down, right, those objects that you were seeing were really related to your immediate present. Once they dry out, just like a junkie <laughs> or someone who's fasting, once those objects stop, you have objects related to deeper parts of your mind that are from the past. And other objects that you won't, you swear, you didn't make up, you don't know where they came from, they're so crazy and so weird. It's like, I have no memory of those things. Where does this stuff come from? The mind is literally telling you, this is delusion. This is when you see like crazy things that don't make sense, like a monkey talking on a phone, you know, or a clown on a typewriter, or any kind of weirdness. It's like you have no memory of any of those things, and you wouldn't even begin to make that stuff up. You come to understand delusion. The Buddha talks about greed, delusion, and anger. He's saying that all of these things that you see when you're mindful, you start, to start, you start to see them not just as objects. First, we're just dealing with the breath. But now you're going to start to have these things come up. They will be related to delusion. And they will come fast and furious. They will be very, very present. This is if you're just doing pure bear, we're calling bear meditation here. We're not dealing with looking at a mandala or anything like that. This is just your mind in its natural state. You might see crazy things. and you, if, if you're not mindful enough, you might have to get up. 
Not everyone can like deal with that. But if you stay with it, and you stay with this instruction, which is they're not real, just remind yourself. Before you said, okay, suffering, 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 anger, anger, okay, greed. You might have seen yourself biting on a sandwich <laughs> or any kind of dhamma that relates to greed. You know it. Oh, that's greed. That's desire. Oh, that's irritation. That's anger. You might see yourself yelling or someone else yelling. All these things are not real. But then you start to see crazier things and you also have to have the same mindset. And you see them arise and pass away. Beyond that, when that finally stops, the mind goes very clean. It becomes extremely clean and it actually seems to be bright. It's like someone who stops smoking and they taste food for the first time. You, everything around you is like wonderful. Like, oh my God, you look at a flower and you're like, oh, that flower is just amazing. Or you look at your wife and you oh my goodness, she's just, oh my God. You look at the, the sky and it's like, oh my goodness, it's amazing. Right? That's how it normally should be, but unfortunately, our minds are like sponges and they're picking up all this stuff all the time. Okay? So we're on our bike finally for concentrating. If we go back to the breath, we're noticing the beginning of the in-breath and the end of the in-breath. We have to pass that stage. We have to know the beginning of the out-breath and the end of the out-breath, right? Once we get there, an amita appears. It's either tactile, a tactile sensation, a strong sensation of the breath, which feels very, very crisp. And hopefully after that, it can become a, a, it's like a mind-made object. It's like a star or a bright white cloud. Once this happens, um, Pogsai uh, says that the eye of wisdom opens up, and also the light of wisdom. What does this mean? Well, he says specifically that you might start to see your body, light around your body. You notice, you call the, people talk about the aura, but basically it says if, if you reach this level of you know, mindfulness, you perceive a kind of a light around your body. You also might feel a kind of a pleasant sensation around your body. When a breeze blows through the window, it's kind of exaggerated. You don't feel cold in your bones. Your body's generating a different kind of heat where it feels like, oh, that's cold over here. It's not like, it doesn't really bother you. And if it's really hot, it doesn't really bother you. It's just kind of over here. You just kind of feel the, the sensation and you have the same kind of mindfulness of it and you keep concentrating but you might perceive light around your body. The person I'm studying, this, this teacher we're going to study with, he says, ignore that. <laughs> Just deal with Namita, because this Namita, this star, is related to your eye of wisdom, which in other traditions they call it, you know, the third eye, and so on, all these names, right? But really what it is, is the ability to see with your mind directly. You don't see with your eyeballs anymore. How does this happen? Well, first of all, you might see uh, a very crisp, lively object where you might see the room and your eyes are closed. You're like, how is it I'm seeing my hands and my knees and I'm on the cushion and I'm seeing the room that I'm in? How is that possible? Well, because the mind actually is what sees. It's not just the eyes. It's the mind that's smelling. It's the mouth that's tasting. It's the, it's the mind that's tasting. The organs are just the uh, external right organs but each of those organs has an internal base 
which is the mind. This is important. Why? Because there are other meditation subjects, such as um, the 32 parts of the body, the white skeleton meditation, uh, the four elements meditation, meditation on corpses, and so on and so on and so on. All these having to do with the body. Seeing all the contents of the body. There's a sutra where the Buddha talks about opening up a bag of rice, and the meditator knows and counts all the different kinds of rice in the bag. These are all the meditations associated with the body. It sounds crazy, but this is meditation isn't about craziness. It's about sanity. So you actually are supposed to get to this point where you can actually see spontaneously it happens. You don't try You see it. All of a sudden you're there and you start, you see your eyeball. You're like, what? Or you see, uh, you see flesh in your mouth, right? Or you see skin. And there are specific meditations such as concentrating on the hair of the head or the hair of the body or the flesh and so on until you actually see it. You can actually see it with your mind, not with your eyes. And this is not about using imagination. This is actually the, because you have enough mindfulness, because you've been constantly noting day after day, minute after minute after minute for many days that your mind starts to attain this power. They don't call it a supernormal power yet. It's actually associated with the divine eye. That's what they call it. But it's just the ability to see with your mind. So you start seeing your body. And when you see your body, you're looking at your body, and you see that the body isn't uh, <laughs> what you thought it was. And you investigate it till you see um, that they have the same characteristics. Suffering, impermanence, not self. The mind becomes distinct. It has its own sphere, and your feelings and the things that you see and hear are separate. Right now, they're not. Right now, everything we hear and everything we see, everything we touch is us. That's how we perceive it. Later on, this is what happens. The bones are supposedly extremely helpful. The white bones meditation because the bones start to appear to be very white. At first, they're just bones. But then they become very bright. And this brightness is even brighter than the breath namita that occurred. It's extremely bright. It, it, becomes, and it becomes like an orb eventually, becomes abstract, and you just take the whiteness of the bone as an object. So you're no longer using the breath. You might just start with the breath to get your concentration, but then you use white. And this is talked about in the Visuddhimagga. They actually have uh, several different discs. There's a different, in the Visuddhimagga, which is written by Buddha Gosa a thousand years ago, he talked about, they talked about using discs, colored discs, red, yellow, and kind of a bluish brown, but white was specifically helpful. And all of these colors have to do with attaining enough concentration where you attain supernormal powers, such as being able to read the minds of others, being able to see into the future and see the past, see cause and effect, flying into the earth, and so on. All these very things that sound very romantic, but actually, if you read some of the more modern yogis, if they've written about it, go, yeah, okay, some of them get that, some of them don't. This isn't the primary teaching, though. Buddha wants you to see, uh, not self, that all the things you see, all the things you touch, all the things you feel or hear are not you. They're just arising and passing away on their own. This is the, the crux of it. So... Just to go back to some sort of like practical notes of what you can do. If you can't quite concentrate on the breath, 
first of all, if you're asleep, if you're sleepy, if you're a sleepy type, and you give in, you have to arouse energy, arouse intention, right? If that means breathing in really deeply ten times, there are breath meditations such as the nine bottle wind practice, and Warren has others. Use that to wake yourself up. Slap your face, stretch your ears. This might seem like obvious stuff, but the point is you have to wake yourself up. If you don't do that, the mindfulness just, it won't stick. It won't stick to the object. If you're too excited to really sit on the pillow, you have to practice tranquilizing your body. Buddha actually talks about that, tranquilizing the body, tranquilizing the mental formation, tranquilizing the bodily formation. For a meditator, yoga, the use of yoga is, is really that. It's to get the body to give up. The real yoga happens when you're giving up, when you can no longer hold another pose and your body finally just gives in. When you sit on the pillow, it'll be very relaxed. And it'll be much easier to get to the stage where you're feeling this bodily rapture. Much, much easier. The thing that happens when you're dealing with the breath, something that happened to me, for a long time. I was one of those hardcore effort types. I would really want to achieve my meditation goal, right? Single one-pointedness, much too hard. And later I learned, actually, my wife took me to someone who told me. He didn't know anything about me, really. He just told me. So you're greedy for Jana. You're too greedy for Jana. He had the power to see other people's thoughts. He didn't say that, but I knew it because the stuff that he was telling me just didn't make any sense to anyone else. You see, you're too greedy for John, and you need to relax, let go of your greed for fine material states. So, greed for getting into heaven, greed for um, some kind of wonderful, blissful state. This is something else to be applied. You can apply that intent to something else, but if you want to get to the point where you can really be mindful of arising and passing away, of not-self, right? Of suffering and letting go, relinquishment, right? And why do you need this? I'll tell you why. Especially if you're doing a lot of meta practice. doesn't matter what tradition you're in. One of the first things I discovered that I needed to do, was told to do, is start with metta. You start with metta, say your prayers, say your good wishes to all beings in all ten directions of space, all 31 realms of existence and so on, from the smallest to the largest, thin, fat, small, big, present and past and so on. Right? You're doing this, do this at the beginning because it sets your intention to be selfless. Selflessness and generosity are connected with relinquishment. They're almost indivisible. They go together. A view of not-self is a view of a willingness to let go of your self-concern and be giving. Okay, now I'm going to go back to this breath thing. And this is something that I discovered that I didn't read about, but it's helped me a lot. If you still are too stiff and can't quite get your breath to have the quality it needs and get yourself to feeling you know, the comfort that you need, Give your breath away. On the out-breath, give it away. When I first started, I was too concerned with the in-breath. I was greedy. right? And this was connected to my personality at that time. Always wanting to become this and being that. So I was doing too much of the in-breath. You can see what kind of person you are, what kind of habit you have, 
if you're a person who breathes in and kind of holds on, you're greedy. Right? If you're a person who breathes in and holds on tightly, (laughs) there's anger there. And your body will let you know because you will start to feel the pains and like you'll start they'll become more intense when you're mindful and concentrated the pains come they they come as part of it and you're supposed to say at that moment which i didn't know was suffering but it wasn't talking about something really like out there it's like no right there that little knot in the back of your neck or that thing in your shoulder this is connected to your comma which is manifesting uh, Consciousness-born materiality, and it eventually leads to all kinds of sicknesses. But at the beginning, it's just tension. You have to find ways to get rid of that stuff. One way I found that was very helpful was giving my breath away. Now, what does this do? I'll go back to the point where I didn't explain this well before. With the breath meditation, the real breathing, the real anapanasati, is when the breath stops. It stops completely in the fourth jhana. It doesn't really stop. It's just that the rough breath stops. And at first, you'll be like, oh my God, I'm not breathing. What's happening? I'm not breathing. And you'll freak and you'll go back to the, you'll you'll gasp and you'll go back to the rough breath. When you understand, you get used to the fact that you're not going to die, right? And your body's fine, right? This is not an unhealthy thing. You get comfortable with it and you almost stop breathing your mindfulness at this point has become very strong you become very balanced and very centered and you're okay right there you cannot get to this blissful equanimity without your breath almost disappearing it starts to disappear it stops giving it away is one way to get to that point because actually what happens is it can't stop on the in-breath. You cannot breathe in and stop it. That's not going to work. This is, this is clinging. This, that's clinging right there. And it's really uncomfortable. If you're a kind of dimwit like me, it'll take a while to figure that out. But if you're really smart, you'll say, oh, this is greed. And just exhale. Really concentrate on giving the breath away. The breath will almost seem like it's hitting a wall. And when it hits, when it feels like it's going outward and kind of hitting a wall where it's stopping you'll actually start to feel the pores of your skin kind of breathe you'll feel almost like the breath is entering through different parts of the body and there are other practices associated with this real anapanasati where the breath stops this is the real breath yoga it stops it kind of stops you don't know how to go into cessation yet but you can decide oh I'm going to do this to enter this cessation for an hour or 15 minutes or a day or a week or whatever and everything just stops. But for now, just know that when it stops, it's great. If you get to the point where it's disappearing, becoming more subtle and more subtle and more refined and it just seems to almost disappear, don't freak out. It just means that your willingness to let go right, has increased. Your ability to relax but in centeredness has increased. When that happens, that's the breath you watch. You watch that breath. You just stay right there. It feels like, this is what it feels like. It feels like a stake in the ground. 
you feel, if, you're, if you get too carried away, you almost feel invincible. Try to resist that. It just means uh, when they talk about one-pointedness, yeah, there's one-pointedness of what? That's not the real one-pointedness. The one-pointedness feels very centered. It's like nothing is bothering you. You feel protected. From this point, I guarantee you, from this point, if you get to this point where you're giving your breath away and it kind of stops and you feel uh, the breath through your whole body or around your body, this is when you do metta. This is when your mind is not polluted by other dhammas. It's not polluted by other thoughts. It's not polluted by other images or other intentions. You are just pure. You are pure being right there and your intention will be very pure and powerful also. So if you want to share loving kindness or compassion or joy, boundless joy, with someone that you love, it will be much more powerful. People talk about praying. There's ordinary praying. But if you can get to the point where your mindfulness and concentration and your tranquility and your equanimity gets to the point where you are centered and nothing is coming in and your intention is pure right there without concern for the past or the future but you're right there in the present your intention will be extremely strong and you can spread metta your metta will go a thousand miles it seems and when you do this you'll know the difference why because you'll feel the metta you'll actually feel it it won't be just oh here's my intention to spread loving kindness or my intention to spread metta you'll feel the metta much more powerfully oh this is prayer You'll say, oh, it'll be kind of like, oh, but you have to stop yourself. Don't get too carried away. But you'll understand when your intention is one-pointed, when your intention is unified because your mind is unified, it just, it's just much more intense. It feels much more authentic. There's nothing else coming in. You're not, there's no other concern that's impinging. You know, all the other uh, cholesterol defilements, they're, not, they're, not, they're nowhere near you now. And you just stay right there, and you have the best thoughts you possibly can for other beings, rescuing boundless beings from, you know, into infinite time and space and so on and so on. Now, there are specific uh, meta, you know, meditations that you can do. We, some of you are, know about that. But the point is, going back to what Warren was talking about, mindfulness is a key. It's a key. It has um, different aspects that you can feel. The first is of directing. Keeping your meditation going in the right direction. Not swerving to the left, running after this object, right? Or this thought. Not slipping. You'll actually feel when, it, when you lose mindfulness, it'll slip. As you get more masterful, it'll come back. And you forgive yourself. Don't, don't you know, be angry with yourself. You have to have compassion for yourself first on the pillow. If you don't, if you allow anger to arise, irritation, you'll be far away, right, from, your, from what you really need to be doing. Forgive yourself, and then you forgive everyone else. Forgive yourself right there. Come back. Keep coming back. This builds up. It's like a muscle. A lot of people like to work out, right, and they see their muscles get bigger. This is a different kind of muscle. <laughs> you can't see, but you can know it. You know it because, oh, I noticed that object more quickly now. Oh, I see it arising and passing away. Oh, I see it as not being me. Oh, my meta is more powerful now. Your knowing is more powerful now. 
My mind is bright. You actually might feel as if your body's shining or your mind is shining. That's another aspect of giving the breath away in your meditation. Shine. I know that. I don't know if you, it's a it's a it's a translation of feeling. Just shine. This is the opposite of taking in. Right? When we're greedy, it was like we're taking in, taking in love. We're taking in bliss. This is yeah. You can do that. There's another aspect where you're sh- you're naturally shining as a result of being one pointed on your meditation object, constantly mindful. Now, it's important you don't give up. If you set your goal before you get on the pillow and you say, I'm not doing this just so I can check the box. You do this and you say, I just, I'm going to get to the point where the wieldiness, the Buddha calls it wieldiness, is just a little better. I may not reach the point where no dhammas are arising. But if I get to the point where there's stability and there's consistent awareness, there's momentum, I can go to bed. Right? Or I can get up and go to work, whatever else I have to do. This is important. It's important so you, first of all, you gain confidence. The Buddha talks about confidence. You gain confidence that you can do it. Not only that, your intention becomes stronger. Right? It's like a runner who, who runs. If they, if, they say, if they say, oh, I'm not going to finish the race, or I'm not sure I'm going to finish the race, well, they won't, they're not going to finish the race necessarily. Right? But if you just get to that mark, you can... You can you know, get up and go, okay. Because what that does is it sets the program for the next session. It makes it, you start setting these little benchmarks and you can, sometimes it takes 15 minutes. Sometimes it takes an hour. Don't give up. If you start to get sleepy, you know, take a walk, be mindful, come back. This was important for me. Some people, maybe it's very easy to just get there and it's not a big deal. But if we're just starting out, we have to be aware, beginning and middle and the end of our meditation object, to the point where we can get one-pointed, tranquil, balanced, not too enthusiastic, and also not too lazy, right? And you complement. There's medicine on both sides, right? When there's laziness or sloth and torpor, we energize ourselves. When there's too much energy, remind yourself to just calm down. Here's one last thing I'm going to give you. There's so much you could say. It's not possible. This is very helpful. Along with the constant noting, along with almost like throwing your mind at the object again and again and again in little broken up pieces. I'm meditating there, I'm meditating there, I'm meditating there. This is another way. Very helpful, especially if you're too excited. And especially if the dhammas are overwhelming you. Slow down. Just slow everything down wish for everything to slow down. I don't mean slow your breath down, right? I mean you're noticing. Ask everything to slow down and have the attitude of slowing everything down. You you may be surprised everything does slow down. It's very helpful. Slowing everything down allows you to notice more. You notice more. And you might be surprised that the dhammas, sankharas, and you know, uh, kalesas, defilements that are arising, they start to obey. They don't like being told what to do, but they don't mind a suggestion. Could you slow down, please? Just slow down. And then you, you start to maybe notice that, oh, the image arises much slower. And, oh, that's nice. Now I can see what that is more clearly. Notice, 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 notice. Oh, thank you. 
right? Before it was, Jesus, it's like flies around your face. You're like, oh, it's just overwhelming. Just slow your mind down. You may, it sounds counterintuitive because you're saying, man, you got, Buddha's asking us to, to notice everything very quickly, very precisely with, you know, with great concentration. Well, there are other things he's saying in the commentaries like, slow everything down. Slow it down. And when you have the intention to slow down, it's very, very good. Not just physically. The mind actually notices more quickly, but everything that it notices slows down and gives you a chance to kind of get your balance. And actually, tranquility enters your body more easily also. Relaxation enters your body much more easily. And mindfulness becomes easier. When you're pedaling really fast, right? It's very hard for you to maneuver. It's very hard for you to relax, right? But when you sit back just a little bit and say, okay, let's just slow down here. The images, the things that are coming into view, the sounds that are coming into view in your mind, whether they're internal or external, they seem to slow down. It's like magic. It's like, whoa, that's really, really great. Now I can meditate. I feel like I'm getting somewhere here. Still notice the beginning, middle, and end if you can. If you can't notice the beginning, well, just say, oh, you know, I'm noticing more of the end of this object. I'm noticing more of the, of the, of the middle of it. I can see what it is. And what are you supposed to notice? First, it's just knowing, right? You're knowing the knowing the breath, da 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 When you start practicing the vipassana, you're knowing just those, there, there's six things. Let's just do the first three. The quality of the object, right? The quality of the object arises and disappears and doesn't, have to ha- doesn't appear to have any substance. Okay, that's impermanence. Simple, right? The second thing you're supposed to notice is its feeling, the emotion that, it, that you feel when you see it. This is very important. So when you see an image, know whether it is an image that causes an ugly feeling or a pleasant feeling, a spiritual feeling, right? A sensuous feeling. If it's connected with sex, it's connected with sex. No big deal. Just don't go chasing after it. If it's connected with anger, oh, anger, right? The three poisons. Anger, right? Delusion, right? And greed. Just remember those three things. Don't remember the endless lists. They all come down. All those defilements, there's many of them, they all come down. Jealousy, and all, they all come down to those basic three qualities. And you'll know. Just keep those three things in mind. And notice, on the other hand, impermanence, this quality of uh, how they appear. The not-selfness. How does the not-selfness appear? Your mind starts to seem disconnected from the body somewhat. Whatever feeling you have in your body starts to feel like it's happening just to the body, not to the mind. It feels like it's happening down there or over there. It doesn't cause an emotion to arise here. When you feel pain, it's pain that's happening to a body. Not your body. It's just, oh, there's pain there. Now, when you're first starting, it's like pain. Oh, Jesus, and you got to move. And you, da, 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 da. The, Buddhist ask, the Buddha asks you to just notice the pain and not to move. This, found, this sounds really difficult, but this is the way it is. Right? There's compassion, and then there's also the mindfulness. There's a father and mother. Father's telling you, no, don't move. Stand there as long as you can, and realize the Dhamma of suffering as I told it to you. It's pain. There it is. Don't over-intellectualize it. There's a pain there. At first, just like the mind, the body will, give, will put up a fight. It'll increase, especially as you start to tense up. 
You'll tense up and it'll be more painful. You'll get punished. The Buddha said non-clinging, clinging is suffering. The more you cling to any mental object or to any feeling, bodily or emotional or mental, the more unpleasant it becomes. The less you cling, the more you give up, the more you give away, and the more mindfulness and concentration you have, the more tranquility you, you arouse, the pain dissipates. Now here's what happens. At first, when you're first starting out, the pain increases because you have an automatic reflex to, you know, kind of, ah, oh, pain, pain's happening, oh my God, I gotta move my knee. Right, later on, there's a, there's a vipassana knowledge, it's called actually the knowledge of pain. This is not an intellectual thing, it's a gnosis thing, it's an enlightenment stage. The pain, first you see it break up. You see it where your concentration has become very bright. You're aiming your concentration at it. You're aiming your mindfulness at it. You see it move. Wherever you saw, saw the pain, say I saw my knee in pain, I put my concentration there, but the energy is very mysterious. The energy of my mindfulness and concentration somehow caused it, it, it sensed that it wasn't actually in any one place. It, it, it popped up just out, it popped up over there and now it's moved. It's moving. It doesn't like my, con my concentration. It doesn't like my mindfulness. It wants to move. It's like putting your hand in water and the water kind of you know, moves away. Concentration has an energy. It's very mysterious. It's not material, it's mental. You look at the pain and if you have enough mindfulness and concentration and enough relaxation, Right? and hopefully you have a little bit of pity going on in your body, a little you know, nice feeling going on in your body, it will move. Right? The third stage, it will break up. It will break up into little pieces. In the fourth stage, the pain will really try to pull up the fight, and it might spread through your whole body. It feels like fire. It might feel like your leg is on fire. I've actually been told by this 30-something-year-old, very wonderful monk, Prapanya, my wife took me to see. He told me that when I went to practice, my legs would feel like at one point they were falling, they were breaking, my bones were breaking. Now I knew what he was talking about. I still don't know exactly because I haven't actually experienced it, but I know the commentaries. This is knowledge of pain. You're supposed to sit there and deal with it. Why? Because if you can concentrate enough and have enough mindfulness at this point, the pain vanishes. It puts up a last fight and then it vanishes and it never comes back. This is wonderful. This is knowledge of pain. What does this mean? Any sickness or illness you have, you can deal with it. It's not happening to you anymore. It's not hitting your heart base, your emotions, and physically, it breaks up and it dissipates. The Buddha had this. He talked, you can you know, read even the last sutta, where he's the Parinibbana Sutta, and he talks about his, you know, he had a problem with his gut. Right? You even think his stomach was actually splitting open. He had this ulcer. Very painful. But he had this he had this gnosis ability through mindfulness and concentration where any pain he noticed, it went away. It just went away. When the pain arises it no longer happens to you, it happens over to the, there to the body. This is the separation of the mind, the chitta, from the body itself. And then the pain dissipates. Now this is kinda this is like, oh my God, man, how can I do this? This is like, wow, that sounds great. It's really like romantic, right? It's like, wow, pain, I'm going to just get rid of suffering. Well, he's saying, no, actually, this is something that happens. This is, there are 16 Vipassana knowledges, right? By constantly noticing, by constant awareness, constant noting, constant mindfulness, and concentration, 
and relinquishment, this is the transformation that happens to your mind, to your consciousness, and to your body. There are 16 of them before you even reach the first stage of light, uh, stream entry enlightenment. Before even Buddhahood, before once return and non-return, you can achieve these, you can achieve 16 different micro-enlightenments that change your life. Right? This is the path of no more suffering. Right? So physical pain is a big deal. I actually, um, I don't, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to leave the stuff out there. I left some books out there. So that's, you know, this is kind of, I, I hope I'm able to give you just some practical things, you know, if you're, especially if you're doing Anapanasati, right? I know it was a lot, um, but thank you very much for allowing me to make merit. And hopefully, you know, you guys can uh, take something from this and apply it. Thank you. Thank you.